0: Good morning, it's good to be with you today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and go to John chapter 20. We've been in John for a while, and this December we're actually finishing up our study of John's gospel. A lot of churches will do John 1, but here we are and we're at the end of the book. And I actually think the link between where we are in John's gospel, so the last couple weeks we've been in John chapter 18 and 19 talking about the crucifixion of Jesus And then in these next few weeks, we're in chapters 20 and 21 about the resurrection. I actually think this ties really well to the themes of Advent. Because the Christmas season, it isn't all about the fun and the festivities. Now, yes, Christmas can be fun. And I love all the good things about Christmas, especially the guilt-free Christmas cookie eating, among other things, or telling people what to buy me. Those are both good things. But Advent isn't only about those things. Advent invokes both images of darkness and light, of waiting and rejoicing, of sorrow and yet hope. We see this in many of our Christmas carols, including the songs we sing this morning. Now some of my favorite Christmas songs, they convey the sadness and the pain and the weariness of our world that Jesus then enters into to bring light. And hope and healing. The tone and the lyrics speak to the ache we feel in this life. You could look at any number of songs, but consider the one we sang this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Now, nearly every line in this hymn, it speaks to God coming to us in our misery or our sorrow or our chains. Let me read verses one and four as examples. Verse one says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive. Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And then verse 4 says, O come, thou Dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Now, in these Christmas songs, we realize that even though we want Christmas to be magical, and sometimes it can be, we still live in a broken and fallen world. That disappointment and discouragement, they don't stop for December. And that's the broken, fallen world that you and I live in. And yet the good news we sing about and that we'll hear about is that real joy and peace and hope and love, the things we talk about with Christmas, that these are available to the weak and the weary, and the discouraged. And that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 20. In the last two chapters, we've walked through the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, his beating, his crucifixion, and then his burial. And the last couple of weeks in John have been rough, not because of Chris or Joel's preaching, but because they're hard chapters to listen to. We've talked about the suffering and the pain of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when John ends, we feel like we are in darkness and the light has gone out. It feels like we're in the aftermath of a storm where everything has been wiped away and destroyed. It feels like the hope is gone. And that's part of why John 20 then is such a beautiful beautiful chapter. Because in John 20, we see that light dawns. In the darkness. And that mourning can actually lead to rejoicing. In John chapter 20, we'll look at three encounters between Jesus and his fearful, frail disciples. So, again, turn with me to John chapter 20. Normally, we do our scripture reading before the sermon, but today we're going to look at kind of four acts of John chapter 20. And so, we'll read the scripture for that segment and then we'll talk about it. Our first section is John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Follow along with me. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the other disciple here is John, the one whom Jesus loved. She says to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We'll stop there. So, this kind of first part of our chapter, John chapter 20, it's actually setting up the stage or the context for three encounters that will come in the rest of the chapter. Now, the encounters between Jesus and these people, that's the focus. But we need to notice a few things from this background to better understand our story. So we'll consider three quick things. First, if you look in verse 1, you'll notice that it's still the quiet morning. And it says that it's still dark. Now beyond John just giving us his, a historical detail, I think he's using imagery to convey at least two things to us as readers. First, it's a reminder that Mary and the other disciples that we'll see that they're still in a dark place spiritually. In their minds, Jesus is dead. All of their hope and their faith, it seems shattered. Everything seems lost. And so, as we, again, as we get to John chapter 20, at least to these disciples, it feels like they're back at the beginning of John 1, where the world is engulfed in dreariness and darkness. And yet, whenever we see darkness in the book of John, we always know that light is on the way. In fact, darkness is setting the stage for light to invade and overcome. Because John always uses these two things together. He always uses darkness darkness and light together he doesn't use them as equals in the force like in star wars but he always sees light as more powerful whenever light shows up on the scene darkness flees and so we have a hint of that here as it's talking about the early morning darkness we have a foretaste that light is beginning to rise a new day is dawning a new week a new calendar A new set of events are here, and they're on the horizon. So that's the first thing we see. Notice as well in verse 1 that the text introduces us to Mary, that Mary is the first one on the scene. And we'll come back to her in detail in verses 11 to 18. But notice her response to seeing the stone being moved is fear and unbelief, just like all the other disciples in this chapter. So as I said, at this point, the resurrection, it's not on their minds. They saw Jesus die a brutal death. The Romans had murdered and crucified him. They think everything is over. And so these first few verses are setting a tone in chapter 20 that the normal response of Jesus' followers here, it's actually fear and doubt and confusion and unbelief. Chapter 20 isn't about these disciples with a strong, unwavering faith, but it's the realistic story of stumbling, struggling disciples. I hope you know that that is good news today, that we are like the frail people Jesus encounters in John chapter 20, that on their own they're about to be overcome by their unbelief, their sorrow, and their despair, that in and of themselves they lack strength and courage. And we are like that. We are often weak and weary and wavering. Maybe you even feel that this morning. And so I hope as you're reading this context, you see that we fit into this story and we, we can identify with Mary and the disciples of Jesus. Well, the third detail to notice before we move to that first encounter is that there, there is an empty tomb. You see in verses uh, 3 to 6 that Peter and John, they run to this tomb, with John being faster than Peter. I love that John, the author of this book, kind of gets a dig in there, that Peter must be slow or he's really fast, but he just happens to slip that in, and I can appreciate that. But the most fascinating details from this section, it's actually about the linens in the empty tomb. It tells us that there are linens that are laying there But then there's also this face cloth that Jesus has folded up. Now, no grave robber would have left expensive linens, and yet no one moving the body would have left unfolded linens and folded the face cloth. And so these details are pointing to a miraculous resurrection. And that's why it says when John sees this, he believes. You can imagine in John's mind that as he comes to this and he sees it, All of the words and the works of Jesus are coming back into his mind. And now he sees an empty grave and he sees these linens in the face cloth and now he believes. And it's a faith consistent with the facts in front of him. I love this detail of the folded face cloth. Now, if I was raised from the tomb after the government had killed me, I'd be running and getting away. The last thing that would be on my mind is folding my laundry. As my wife just laughed, I barely remember to fold laundry in day-to-day life as it is. And so if I'm suddenly resurrected, I'm brought to life after just being killed by the government, the last thing I would do is take the time to gently fold my laundry and put it to the side. And yet I think the picture that's going on here is that Jesus is calm and collected. That he does that because he expected this to happen. He's not suddenly surprised that he's alive or resurrected, but Jesus expected this. He's not running, he's not fleeing, he's not caught off guard, and he's not in a rush. So he takes the time, he folds it, and he puts it to the side. D.A. Carson says, The description of the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, it suggests that it had been neatly rolled up and set to one side by the one who no longer had any need for it. It's sort of like how after Thanksgiving or after a a restaurant experience, you take your napkin and you kind of throw it on the table. It's signaling that I, I don't need this, I'm done with it. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here, that he signals that he has conquered the grave, that though he needed that face cloth once, he will never need it again, and so he puts it to rest. Well, verses 1 to 10 have just been giving us these details that are then important for the rest of the chapter. And it's kind of inviting us as readers and as listeners of how we would respond. Would we automatically have faith or would we be like the disciples who are weak and fearful and uncertain? What do we think about the claims of Jesus and how will we respond to what we see in John's gospel? Let's go to our first encounter where Jesus interacts with a sorrowful Mary. So we have verses 11 to 18. Jesus then says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But, I, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We'll stop there. So again, our, our scene changes. It moves in verses 10 and 11 to the disciples who flee and go home. To verse eleven, Mary, who either returns or stays here at the grave, and it gives us this picture that she is a grieving, weeping woman. It's not just a little tear, but she is weeping. And despite her fear, she looks inside the tomb, and she sees two bright angels, two lights in the darkness. Now the angels are God's messengers. Throughout the Bible, whenever we see angels, it's an example of God's presence and God's activity and involvement. And so again, it's an indication that it wasn't soldiers that moved the body of Jesus. It wasn't any grave robbers or any human hands, but it was the work and activity of God. And the angels testify to that. Well, Mary then turns and she sees a man standing in the shadows. She doesn't recognize him at first. Maybe it's because it's a little dark. Maybe it's because her eyes are so blurred from all the tears. Or maybe it's because she can't make sense of who she's seeing now when her last sight of Jesus was this beaten, mangled body. In any case, Mary assumes it's the gardener, and so she asks, Where have you moved the body? Now, Mary loves Jesus, and her commitment to him is clear in this chapter. But at the same time, she's not relating to things based on faith, but through her experience and her struggle, as we all do. Her commitment to Jesus is sincere, but her discouragement and her sadness, they actually cloud her faith in these moments. That her experience of disappointment and her pain, it blurs her vision to what God is doing right in front of her. So the question to ask today, is anyone here today... A Mary Are you sorrowful? you discouraged? Do you bear a heavy load? Do you feel weak and weary? Well, notice how Jesus treats such a person and how He treats Mary. That Jesus is the answer to her needs, and he is the one that she was looking for. that His presence becomes the balm to soothe her wounds. That Jesus doesn't rebuke her for grieving that he doesn't rebuke her for not putting the facts together and having a stronger faith. But he does want her to know that despite everything that's happened, despite what she feels, that God's plans have never been thwarted, that Jesus is still in control, and that Jesus is now risen and standing in front of her. And so when Jesus finally, when he speaks her name, she immediately knows it's him. This is the point in the story where if this were a movie, the darkness would give way to light, and the music score would rise, and the person would step out of the shadow, and we would see the risen Jesus. John 20 has now moved us to the point where the dead and crucified Jesus, that he is alive, that the grave could not hold him. And we see in Mary that a thrill of shock and awe and excitement, that this hope and joy shoot through her soul like lightning in the night. She is excited. And we see also that in Jesus right before that, that she is at her lowest point. That Mary before that, she is a distraught, heartbroken woman. That she's in her lowest flow, and yet a gentle, gracious Savior kindly speaks her name. He says, Mary. To speak her name, it's a word of comfort and assurance. It's to let her know that I see you, that I know you, that I'm here to be present and to be your peace. One author writes, the one word, this one word, Mary's own name, spoken by the most significant person she had ever known changed her whole life. Something similar happens in the best Christmas movie ever. You know what it is, It's a Wonderful Life, of course despite it being like five hours and a little slow at the beginning. Great movie. Now we see a similar experience at the end of this movie when we have the main character, George Bailey. He's standing on the bridge. And we've seen throughout the movie kind of his despair and his darkness. We've seen the hard road that he's walked through. And finally, we have him here on the bridge. He's at the end of his rope. And so he prays this prayer that, God, I want to live again. I won't do my accent, but he says, I want to live again. And as viewers, we realize that things have suddenly changed when the snow starts to fall. But George doesn't know that. And so as a cop car comes onto the scene, he still thinks, this cop, Bert, he won't know me. I'm still a stranger. And so George gets defensive. But it's not until George speaks his name that George does a double take. He realizes when he hears his name, George, that, wait, this person does know me. That this is my friend, There's something comforting and encouraging and loving about hearing his name, George. And that's what happens to Mary when Jesus says her name, Mary. She feels the same way. Notice as well that Jesus here, he doesn't speak to her a word of condemnation. Any word of condemnation is not the voice of Jesus, but it's the voice of the enemy. Instead here, Jesus speaks to her a word of encouragement. That his word does not shut us in the darkness, but it gives hope and light. And so I hope today in the midst of whatever you're walking through, that today you can remember during this Advent season that Christ came to be with us. But he also came to be for us. That just as the resurrected Lord spoke Mary's name with comfort and encouragement, so God speaks to us today through his word. He wants you to know that you are is that you are known and you are loved. And so here we learn from Mary that when we look to Jesus, when we listen to the voice of Jesus, that's when the weak become strong. That's when the sorrowful find hope. That's when the hopeless find hope and light comes into the darkness. Now we'll skip verses 17 to 18 because we have a similar commissioning with the disciples. So that's the first encounter of Jesus. That he comes to the sorrowful Mary and he gives her comfort. We now move to our second encounter between Jesus and the disciples in verses 19 to 23. Again, follow along with me. It says On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So here in verse 9, we have this transition. So Mary's kind of out of the picture. And here we see the disciples. And the disciples are hiding, locked away in their homes. It's now evening, and you can see the disciples that they're worried. That in their minds, they're thinking that the Jews have already killed our leader, Jesus. And now they might be coming to squash the others in this movement. You can imagine some of the questions these disciples are asking in their fear. Questions like, Are we doomed? Will we be arrested? Do we and our families need to flee to another country? The dread and the worry in that room, it must have been thick. Maybe today some of you, you didn't feel as much associated with Mary, but maybe you can relate to the disciples. Maybe fear and worry is what grips you these days. We are a culture and a day where anxiety feels like it is overwhelming. We fear for our safety, we fear for our health and our future. We're worried about our finances, our employment, our government, our children. We worry that circumstances won't actually get better, but they might get worse. We go online, we get onto Google, and we look for hope and for answers, and it actually throws fuel on the fire of our worry. So I hope as we read this, we can relate to the disciples, because we struggle with fear And worry. Well, again, how will Jesus treat them? Does Jesus relate to the anxious and worried with frustration and annoyment? Does he expect them to be stronger than they are? Does he leave them in their fear and ask them to get themselves out? Or is Jesus gentle and patient? Well, we see that when Jesus enters the room, when he gathers around his disciples, his his words to them in fear are words of peace. That he comes to them not to let them have it for forsaking them, not to condemn them for their fear, but he comes as a peacemaker and as their friend. He wants them to know that he is not against them, but he is for them. That he's not there to tear them down for their weak faith, but he's there to build their weak faith back up. And for these disciples there is peace here in knowing that Jesus has not only conquered the grave, that Jesus no longer can be stopped by anyone or anything. The point here for the disciples is that Jesus has not been defeated, that Jesus is the victor. They were not wrong about him, but he is the Messiah and the Son of God. And so they must be concluding, if Jesus has the power of life and death in his hands, then what can the government or anyone else do to us? And so Jesus comes to the fearful, the anxious, and the worried, and he offers them his peace, his strength, and his courage. Frederick Bruner, in his commentary, he writes this. The risen Lord's initial gift to his assembled disciples is his peace, which means his love, his forgiveness, his favor, and his blessing. Thus, the first words of the risen Jesus and of his mission, and of his mission to his gathered disciples significantly are not a command, but a gift. There is no preliminary reminder of the disciples' failure to support him in his crisis, no call for repentance or even for faith. There is sheer grace. Well, as we read this, we notice again a common pattern throughout John and throughout Scripture, that Jesus comes to them and he sustains them, he matures them, and he equips them. But then Jesus sends them out. Jesus does this with Mary, and then he does it again with his disciples. And part of the application for us in John chapter 20 is to see that this applies to us as well. That this is sort of a preview of what happens to the church as a whole in Acts. That not only does God give us joy, but God calls us to share that joy. Not only does God reveal truth to us through his word, but he calls us to take his message on the mission. And Christmas is a great opportunity to share the love and the peace and the joy we have through Jesus. That many things happen during this season, and one is an open door to share the gospel. And I think there's even grace in that Jesus doesn't give up on the disciples because of their weaknesses, but he chooses to use imperfect people. That the disciples here, they haven't blown their one shot. That though they are weak and fearful and timid, Jesus is their peace and their courage and their strength. This is telling us that Jesus is not through with them or done with them or disappointed with them, but Jesus is equipping them and still plans to use them. And the good news is that he's also not done with you or I. That just as Jesus was not done with his work through the disciples, so you and all your weaknesses and shortcomings, Jesus plans to still use you. That is a gift and that is another example of his grace. So the encouragement is to allow God to use you, to don't see your weakness as an impediment to God using you, but as a means for which God to show himself, to reveal himself, and then to use your weakness in the lives of others. Well, we now move to our third encounter. So Jesus has had an encounter with the sorrowful Mary, the fearful disciples, and now we move to doubting Thomas. Follow along with me in verses 24 to 31. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And yet, have believed. And then John kind of wraps up everything he's been writing when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here we have Thomas, who is missing from this last encounter. The other disciples, they come to him and say, we've seen the risen Jesus. And yet Thomas says, unless I see him, unless I can physically touch him myself, I will never believe this. Now it's worth noting that Thomas has already seen Jesus raise the dead. In John chapter 11, Jesus allows Lazarus to remain dead for four days. And then he comes to him to raise him up and show that he has power over death and life. That he is the resurrection. And what's interesting is that John 11 actually mentions Thomas. He's the only disciple specifically mentioned, and it tells us that Thomas is present when Jesus does that work. So Thomas has seen Jesus raise the dead. Thomas knows what Jesus is capable of. And even before that, in John chapter 10, verse 17, Thomas hears these words, that Jesus tells them that he will not only lay down his life for his sheep, but he said that he would take it back up again. And so remember the events of John chapter 10, John chapter 11, they're only one week before Jesus dies. And so here we are, Thomas has seen Jesus raise the dead, Thomas has heard Jesus talk about doing this himself, and now two weeks later, Thomas is full of doubt and weakness and he's wavering. That even though he knows what Jesus can do, the experience of the cross has been so traumatic and so in his face that now he forgets all the words and works of Jesus. And maybe today you can relate to Thomas. Maybe you're not a Mary. Maybe you're not like a fearful disciple. Maybe you're more like a doubting, wavering Thomas. Maybe despite what God has done in your life, despite answered prayers in the past, there are still times your faith is weak, that you quickly forget God's words and God's work in your life, that you struggle to believe that God will come through in whatever you're facing right now. You wonder if God's truths and his promises, if they actually apply to you. Well, again, notice, how does Jesus then treat such a person? How does Jesus treat a doubting Thomas, someone with a small faith? Will Jesus berate him for not having an unshakable faith? Will Jesus kind of throw up his hands in frustration and say, why did you forget everything I told you? How can you uh, disbelieve again? Will Jesus demote him to a second-rate disciple? Or will Jesus again meet someone in their weakness and show them undeserved grace? Well, we're told in the text that Jesus comes to Thomas and the disciples again a week later, so on a Sunday, and that again to Thomas, he extends his peace. Now, Jesus doesn't leave Thomas in his unbelief or in his doubt, but he draws near. Jesus actually shows himself to Thomas. He allows him to be seen and to be experienced. And we don't know in the text if, Jesus, or if Thomas actually needs to go touch Jesus But we're told that either the seeing and the hearing him or through touching him, that immediately the doubts flee. That when Thomas sees Jesus, all of a sudden now he does believe. And like John, you can guess that all of those words and those works of Jesus come back to mind. And here we have this confession of Thomas, this undeniable confession of the deity of Jesus. Thomas finally says in verse 20, 28, he says to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. And this is where the book of John has been leading us all along in these 20 chapters. It's been taking us to this climactic point where we testify that Jesus is not only the crucified Savior, he's not only our substitution, but he is actually the risen, resurrected Savior. That Jesus is worthy of our faith and trust. That Jesus is who he claimed to be. And that his resurrection, it proves all these things he's been talking about. And so John and Jesus are here hoping that we can echo Thomas's claim. Jesus says in verse 27 that he wants to see Thomas move from disbelieving to believing. And so he wants also to hear our confession where we would say like Thomas, my Lord and my God. But I want to close with two final applications we can draw from our text. The first is to remember and rest in the words and work of Jesus. Now while John 20 provides encouragement in seeing and knowing how Jesus treats his, with grace his strugglers, I think there's a lesson to learn from the disciples and how quickly they forget. We've seen that both Mary and the disciples, they're quick to forget all that Jesus had said and all that Jesus had done for them. I've mentioned this, but Jesus has shown them his power, his miracles, his teachings. He's told them he would die and come back to life. He's actually raised the dead In front of them. But the powerful emotional trauma they've gone through with the cross, it causes them to now forget the words and the works of Jesus. And what we see is that the very things, the words of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the very things that could have sustained them through their struggle, that they're now ignored, neglected, and left on the shelf. That the very things that could be carrying them through are not a part of their life. And so as they ignore the words of Jesus, as they ignore what Christ has done, these difficult circumstances become bigger and bigger and bigger. Instead of having the truths, they're replaced with lies. Now despair overcomes their hope. And so I think we can learn from the disciples here that there is a danger in neglecting what Jesus has told us. There's a danger in neglecting what God has told us in his word and what he showed us in his own life. That when we are tempted, that we are going through trials, it is easy to be so stuck in those circumstances that we neglect God's word. That we're so caught up in the pain and our experience and what we're feeling that we put to the side what Jesus has promised us and told us and what Jesus showed us in the Bible. And yet the Bible tells us that it's the word, that it's the truth that will set us free. That it's God's promises that sustain the weary. And it's the work of Christ that will give us rest. And so my encouragement here is to keep in front of your mind all that Jesus has said and all that he has done. That when you're going through trials, when you feel weak and discouraged, that you would remember and you would rest in the words and the promises of Jesus. That you would be sustained in every trial and every temptation by the hope we have of looking to him. And then second, we learn that as Jesus relates to his disciples in John chapter 20, so also he still relates that way to us today. Again, remember how Jesus treats his struggling, fearful, weak disciples throughout John 20. And then find comfort and grace that he treats you with that kind of kindness and patience today. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the way we lovingly see him meet his followers where they're at in this chapter is the same way he will lovingly meet you where you are today. Just like how Jesus knew the grief that Mary felt and how she needed a word of comfort. Just like Jesus saw the fear in the disciples' heart, and so he gives peace and courage and strength. Just like Jesus knows the flickering faith in Thomas' heart, so he sees and knows whatever is going on in your life today. That whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you're walking through, whatever you're feeling or experiencing, that God knows and God fully sees. The truth is that we cannot hide from God, but also that we don't need to hide from God. That our soul is bare before him. And the good news is that when we believe that's true, we see in John 20 that Jesus meets us where we're at, he meets us with our needs, and he gives us according to our needs that what each of us need is what they needed in John chapter 20. It's not more internal strength. It's not building up more faith on our own. It's not just pushing through or hoping things get better, but it's looking to Jesus. It's finding our peace and our comfort and our hope in him. It's knowing that he's not disappointed with us, that he's not frustrated with us, but that he is patient and kind and loving, that he is the risen, resurrected Lord, And that our faith is in his hands and not our own. So my hope today, my hope is this Advent season, that we can be like these disciples and like Mary. That we can see the goodness and the kindness and the love of our Lord. And that we then would look to him. That we would listen to him. And that we would find our rest and our hope and our peace in Jesus. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we're thankful for this time we've had in John, knowing that you not only came as a baby, but you actually lived a perfect life, you died in our place, and then you rose from the grave. So God, this morning, we are thankful that we get to sing to a resurrected Savior, and also a sympathetic high priest who knows our struggles, who enters in, and who meets us where we're at. We thank you, and now we prepare our hearts, and we sing to you with joy and thankfulness. Amen. Amen.